If you put a club in your hand that you are not comfortable with, whatever the situation is, your dispersion is very likely going to get bigger. Your dispersion doesn't stay the same no matter what. It will get bigger, it will get smaller based on, on you. And welcome back. Welcome aboard another Park Train. I'm one of your co-hosts, Devin Singer. I got my partner in crime, our other co-host, Matt Cermak, with me. What's up, Ev? Sir, we're on a roll right now. Rolling fast on the tracks right now. We we just recorded this the morning after our podcast with Cermak's brothers. But God, we're fired up. Guys, in case you're new or if this is almost your 200th ride on the train, if your golf game's off the rails, you're sick of riding the struggle bus, you've come to the right place. The part train helps frustrated golfers enjoy the ride again on and off the course because if you can learn to smile through bad golf, you can smile through anything. The part train podcast unpacks the mental game. With PGA Tour pros, best-selling authors, CEOs, sports psychologists, everyday golfers, stats, statisticians like Lou Stagner today. Mathematicians. Mathematicians. I don't know what you call it. I'm not a numbers guy. <laughs> no, both. I'm saying yeah. both. Throw both. them in there. <laughs> and more to make the hardest game in the world feel easy and help you finally get back on track. This episode of The Part Train, like every episode of The Part Train, is presented by Roback Activewear. People are seeing our polos every time I'm wearing the Masters chair polo right now you're wearing the hat and the polo go to roback.com enter the code train get yourself a polo they're releasing new styles every week some people still come up to us and be like dude i've been hearing about it i've heard your ad reads i still haven't pulled the trigger then they feel it on our body and they go okay that's it i'm finally gonna do it so get off the fence Go to rollback.com, enter the code train. If you've already done it, enter a new email, sbcglobal.net, whatever you need to do. And if you forget the code, go into the show notes of any episode. There will be a link there. The code will auto apply in that link. Thank you to the Roback team, as always, for helping us ride the train. Guys, go get the white hats. Every white hat they have, it's the best looking white hat you'll ever wear and feeling hat. <laughs> Our podcast is going so well. Serm just missed a meeting. He just didn't show. And then after we recorded, he goes, are we in a roll right now? We're both fired up. We just had Lou Stagner at Lou Stagner on Twitter and at Lou Stagner Golf on Instagram. He's more of a Twitter guy. He's the data lead at Arcos Golf and probably one of the best follows you could have on yeah. Twitter. He's really all about managing expectations, giving us data that makes you have these wow moments. You can't believe it. And it makes you realize, I think he said something very interesting. He said that we're not just watching the best players in the world. We're watching the best players in the world play their best golf, right? The leaders come down the stretch. So that's an even higher standard of right. the best players in the world on heaters. So our standard of what good golf is, is way too high. And again, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't strive to play great. But this episode, it reminds me a lot of the Scott Fawcett episode, which is one of our most popular, most downloaded episodes of all time. So I know this is going to do well. You guys are going to absolutely geek out and love this. And by the way, I think we did a good job, sir, not to pat ourselves on the back. But look, you can go follow him and get all the stats, right? So we were very intentional right. about what stats we talked about. We didn't want to get too data heavy. He's done plenty of podcasts that do that. But I think we had a really good balance. I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. How do you sum up what Lou does? Some might say he manages expectations through data, right? Mm -hmm. But Ev, as we talk about with Lou, the term manager expectations can put people off, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's the plus three handicap, the five handicap, or the 15 handicap. I think it's maybe more around tailoring your expectations. You know, 
to your game based on the data that he has and can provide through Arcos. No, I thought it was a really good conversation, spirited conversation. And look, guys, that for listen, we really talk a lot about the 10 handicapper and about some of the areas that really hold you back or can propel you forward. Club selection off the tee, being extra aware of where bunkers are on holes. Bunkers, very bunkers are killers statistically. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, we a lot get of good comments about off the tee where you should be punting on different parts of the greens. We go through a lot of situations out on the course for all kinds of players. We talked, we talked about the plus handicaps. We talked about the five, 10 and the 15. So Lou's going to be coming back on in the fall, which is going to be a lot of fun to break down more of uh, his college coaching and data work he's going to be doing. So yeah, what an awesome guy. And we're fired up. Now right let up? me give the listeners a little taste. We didn't talk about the stat on the show, but I'm going to give them a little taste, a little appetizer before we get to this interview. I'm pretty sure this is tour statistics. Okay. Yeah. 20 yards off the green with at least 10 yards on the green to work with. So they got plenty of green to work with 50% of a 20 yard pitch get hit outside eight feet. Guys just internalize that on tour. And now so we talk a lot about amateur in. stats versus tour stats. He's very big on amateur stats. You'll hear why over tour stats, but God, I'm, I'm going to stop talking because we're fired yeah. up. This episode is so good. We're just going to get you right to it. But just one final reminder, if we've got, if you've gotten any value from our show, please do us a solid. All we ask is give us a review on Apple podcasts. It means a lot. We want others to be inspired by your story. And we're posting content four to five times a day on every platform. Instagram, Twitter, TikTok are our biggest. Um, Instagram's our biggest, but doing more and more on TikTok. And and lose a Twitter guy. So lose a Twitter guy. And we're at the par train. And so, guys, no matter how high your expectations are at the start of your round, Lou basically said this at the end of the episode. But basically, just repeat what Lou said at the end of the episode. What do they got to do, sir? Just enjoy the ride. It's a game. Let's play it. Right. And I need that reminder as much as anyone. We all do. There so you do. there's your reminder. <laughs> Enjoy the show, guys. Thanks, as always, for hopping aboard. Take care. And we are back with Lou Stagner. Lou, welcome aboard the part train. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, appreciate uh, the opportunity to come and chat with you today. I was just telling you off air, Lou, this is one of the more unique ways we've gotten someone on the show. I was telling you, we were literally sitting at the dinner table on my first night in bachelor party in Cabo. And one of my buddies, Bird, shout out to Bird, said, dude, do you follow Lou Stagner? You got to get him on the show. I love all of the stats that he goes. And I go, of course, we follow Lou. We posted some of his stuff on Instagram and retweeted it and stuff. But here you are from a conversation at dinner at my bachelor party. This must have been the worst bachelor party ever, man. <laughs> We're Who's talking golf stats. At a, that's the kind of bachelor party that I need to be at. The kind where you're talking golf stats at dinner. Like that's right up my alley. So it's on brand for the trip. It is yeah, very on sure. brand. Yeah. Lou, we're going to go a million different ways. You know, we're all about the mental game. So managing expectations is a big part of that. And we're going to go through various things. But before we start, I wanted to read a quote you said that I think is really important because every time we talk about managing expectations, we get replies and comments and saying, Oh, you're telling me not to try hard. So I want to, I want to level set before we start with this quote, you said managing expectations doesn't mean you try less or don't care. You try every shot. You give it everything you got. You simply don't beat yourself up because you have expectations that are completely unreasonable. 
And I think that's the, uh, the, the message I try to drive home. And I get a lot of the same feedback slash pushback that, that you do on that topic is, is when I, when I put out things that are, are meant to help people manage their expectations appropriately. Uh, and by appropriately, I mean, appropriate for their skill level. Uh, we're all different. I'll often get people coming back at me and, and saying things like, I'm going to try, and this is telling me I shouldn't try and I shouldn't care. And it's, it's just the opposite. And I think there's so many players out there that have expectations that are warped and they do not align with what is reasonable for their skill level. And sometimes people just don't have a really good understanding of the things that they're good at and the things that they're bad at. So, you know, I've seen players, well, we'll just say a 10 handicap that a 10 handicap that might be a really good approach player, really good wedge player for their skill level. They think they're horrible because they're expecting to hit everything inside 12 feet like a tour pro or like they think a tour pro does. And when they don't, they get upset. And ironically, the reaction to those unreasonable expectations can actually then cause you to start playing worse because you start to get uptight, anxious, however you want to describe it about your game. So having these warped expectations can lead you to be frustrated, mad, angry, upset, disappointed. I want to quit the game. All of those things that we've all probably said uh, one time or another, um, that does not help you play better. And so when you have reasonable expectations, it helps you play better. And of all the things that I put out there and all the things I've done, uh, I've had literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of messages, DMs, emails, text messages from people that say, this really helped my game. Um, mm -hmm. I enjoy the game better now. I enjoy the game more. Um, I play better now uh, because I, I'm not expecting unrealistic things from myself. So I continue to put that stuff out there and hopefully it continues to help to make a difference with, with folks. We made a video about a month ago about an experiment where pre-shot act as if you've hit the shot a thousand times, right? Believe you have belief and confidence. You can hit it, act like a pro, but then after the shot, act like a beginner, not bad for a first timer, right? So it's the confidence yeah. matched with acceptance, which is kind of in line with what you just said. Yeah, that's great. That's a really interesting. So you did um, tell me more about that. That's really interesting. And I'm, I'm curious about you know what you did, how you did it, and how many people were involved. That's really cool. Yeah, we just posted as an experiment. A lot of yeah. people were trying it and sending yeah. us very similar messages to what you get, which is, you know, I think it's either you play with fear, so you don't have confidence, right? Or you have confidence, but then you don't accept when you probably play within your line of misses, but you don't have low expectations. You have too high expectations. So it's funny. You kind of need both, right? You kind of need to believe you can do it, but then you also need to be okay when you don't. And that doesn't mean to your point that you're not trying any less. It's giving yourself a break so that you're giving yourself an opportunity to be, have that same intention, the next shot. Otherwise you go into the negative spiral. Like you said, I would be interested to know Lou, if you could only choose one group of golfers, let's just use to, for simplicity, amateurs versus pros, which data set, which stats would you choose? What do you think would make a bigger impact? for the golfing community out there, the regular amateur? Is it the tour pro stats and realizing that they're actually not as unbelievable as, as we see in the highlight reels? I mean, they're unbelievable, but you know, it's different than the highlight reels versus 
seeing stats about us. What do you think would make the bigger impact if you could only choose one? If I could only choose one, it would be amateur data for sure. Just because I have, and, and I have access to amateur data. I have access to the largest set of amateur data in the world at Arcos. And there's over 550 million shots in the Arcos wow. database, which wow. to put that in perspective, there's about 22 million in shot length. So there's what, 25 times the number of shots in Arcos as there is in shot length. So it's, it's a crazy amount of data. The reason I choose amateur data is because I have access to all different skill levels of AMs and I can get down to, you know, plus threes, plus fours, really, really elite, elite players. And I have the sample sizes at that skill level is really big and big enough for me to do whatever I want with that data to understand how they perform. Very few people are ever going to get to that range. So I can show data at that level, scratched players, and very few people ever attain that skill level. That would be a great goal for somebody to get to, right? A 10 handicap that wants to be a scratch one day and me posting scratch data so they can understand what the profile of a scratch player looks like and how they perform, I think is great. And I think it's significantly better than tour data because they are literally world-class athletes. It's the best few hundred players in the world. There's nearly 50 million golfers on the planet. And these are the best couple hundred out of 50 million, which is pretty elite to get there. They are so much better than amateur players. And I know we, we kind of get skewed by what we see on TV. We're seeing the best players in the world playing their best. And that's typically what they're showing. And we get, we get skewed by that. And certainly when you look at all tour players, they are not performing as well as the guys that are on a heater, but they're still incredible and they are so much better than amateur players. I've put a ton of tour stuff out there in the past and I continue to put that data out there, but I think there's way more value in the amateur data and, and how we can use it. I think we can relate to that a whole lot more than we can the tour data. I think sometimes it's fun to put the tour data out there to help show how warped people's expectations are of what tour players really do. So I think that's useful and helpful, but I'm sticking with the AM data. No, it's great, Lou. And it's great to have you on. I want to dig in a little bit more on how, you know, every player is different, obviously, but how you would coach those, those scratch amateur players. So last night we had, a. I come from a big golfing family. We all play division one golf. We had my two brothers on last night who just won the Butterfield Invitational here in Chicago. Mike's a plus two, Joe's a plus five. And they're very different players, but guys like them that would come to you, generally, where would you maybe focus on? Is it more ball striking? Is it a certain yardage? Is it more short game? It really depends on the player. Like everyone's different. So we'll do analysis on their stats and what they do and where they're good at. And I help them identify those things. I work with players on the mental side of the game. So I, I went through a certification program with a sports neuroscientist. His name is Dr. Izzy Justice, and he works with professional athletes across different sports from golf to NASCAR and everything in between. And kind of shocking to hear that NASCAR drivers, I, I don't follow NASCAR really at all, how you know they work on the mental game as much as golfers do, which is pretty yeah. fascinating to me. 
And so I, I went through his certification program and, and I've worked with him on a few things. Uh, and I'm taking what I've learned from guys like him and working with players on that. But Matt, I think you touched on it. Every player is different. And you know, there were last year there were a couple of scratch players that I was working with and and did a few sessions with them. And they were both around a one index right in that range. And there was, I want to say about nearly two and a half shots difference with them per round in their putting. So hmm. one player was about two and a half shots better per round than the other player. And that's not uncommon. And I've put some of this data out there, but at the amateur level, when you look at any given skill level, it starts to get a little bit smaller when you get down to really elite players. So scratch players and plus players. But when you look at 10 handicaps, five handicaps, 15 handicaps, let's say we lined up all the 10 handicap players and we got the, the best 5% of the putters uh, that are 10 handicaps. Um, and then we looked at the worst 5% of the 10 handicap putters. There's nearly four shots difference in putting between those two groups. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't say, well, you know, if you're a 10 handicap, if you want to be better, you got to be a better ball striker, you know, generically that's pretty, that's true. Like if you want to be a really good player, you have to be a better ball striker, but we have 10 handicap players that hit the ball pretty good. Um, they're okay. They could certainly be better if they wanted to get to scratch, but they are horrific putters like, and there's low hanging fruit for them if they work on that skill level. So everybody's different, which is why it's so important to track your stats and understand where your strengths and your weaknesses are. So you can tackle what is appropriate for you. Um, you know, there's not a one size fits all we're, we're all different and, and we all perform in different ways. Well, the, Lou, to keep going on this point, because I do want to talk about the 10 handicapper, which is a lot of folks that listen to our show Okay, so that 10 handicapper is not a great putter, right? We see that. But what's the correlation between where, he's, where they're hitting their iron shots? You know, when you're putting from behind the hole all day or different, the wrong quadrants of the green, a 40-footer downhill can be a lot worse than a 15- to 20-footer chip uphill. So curious what that data looks like, and is it kind of a meet in the middle? You have to improve your putting if you want to get to a low handicap, but at the same time, you have to rethink how you're approaching the greens. The one thing I'll say there is I don't know that there's a 40 foot putt anywhere. That's going to be harder than a 15 yard chip from the rough. Um, from the rough. It, sure. Yeah. Yeah. From the, rough. from the fairway in front of the green. Generally you want to get the ball on the green as quickly as you possibly can. Right. That's, that's, that's pretty much um, what you need to do. Scott Fawcett, if, I'm sure you guys are familiar with Scott Fawcett. And We've had him on the show. Yeah, he's yeah. done, he's done a, a remarkable job at you know, taking what Mark Brody did with strokes gained and coming up with ways to pick smart targets that are math-based. And you want to balance hitting as many greens as you possibly can, minimizing how often you short side it. You know, short sighting it is really challenging, but at the end of the day for amateurs, losing strokes through penalty shots is a huge leak for players. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where they need to start when you're racking up three or four penalty strokes per round. It's hard to put a good number on the board when you're making 
really bad decisions, when you get yourself into trouble, it's hard to put a good number on the board. And so I've, I've um, worked with a few, I'll call high to mid handicap players, just moving them towards keeping their ball in play more is a, is a huge win for most players. Sometimes that means hitting way less club than driver, way less club than three wood, five wood. Sometimes it means just keeping it in play. Like there was a, a 15 handicap that I, I've gotten to know and I worked with at his home course. And I'm not going not, not gonna to call him out or call his course out, but there's a par five on this course that was just, it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. It was a jungle on the right-hand side. OB on the left-hand side, and there was maybe 35 yards of room for the first 220 yards. This wow. guy can't hit his driver more than 220. Like, and he, like, he was just losing ball after ball after ball there with driver, with three wood, with hybrid. We actually had to drop down and he was hitting eight iron off the tee just to keep it in play. Like, so he didn't right. lose so many balls because he literally had 35 yards of room. And for a, you know, mid handicap, that's not a lot of space. Like that's not a lot of space for a good player for sure. trying to hit a 200 yards. And so, you know, making those kind of uh, decisions uh, is generally low hanging fruit for a lot of the people that are listening. Hopefully that made sense. Now, this yeah. is, this is really interesting. So let me jump in yeah. for a sec, because I think people hear our episode with Scott or they follow him or they read decade. And we just had Chris Nagel on the show. Who's had this amazing Monday qualifying run. I think like four out of the last five Monday qualifiers he's qualified for in the last seven weeks. But a lot of these guys say you should really be hitting driver everywhere, but what is the balance and what does the data say with the player you just described, right? Because we can't hit driver everywhere to gain the distance if we're getting penalty shots from the driver. So what's the balance there? Well, yeah, um, I'm sure you guys have read Every Shot Counts uh, by Mark Brody, which is my favorite golf book of all time. And in that book, Brody describes it. Brody walks through what is appropriate. And for that skill level, you want to limit the percentage of tee shots that go OB down to about 3% of your tee shots. So you want to pick targets where less less than 3% of the time or about 3% of the time you're going to hit a ball OB. Uh, and if you're hitting uh, shots OB at a higher clip than that, you're losing strokes, which means you need to either adjust targets farther away from penalty strokes in the situation where you have penalty strokes on one side and, and room on the other side, or you need to drop back to shorter clubs that are going to have a tighter dispersion so that you limit the percentage of penalty shots that you hit OB. Um, so the, those, um, and that number gets smaller. So when you go down to elite level players, I think it's one and a half percent. Um, and then from, you know, we'll call mid cap to high cap type players, 15 to 20, that's 3%. So that, that was Brody's work. He, it, he has a whole section in his book about that. It's great to read. So I would suggest to your readers, if, if you have that book, go reread that part. And if you don't have that book, I would say, go get that book because there's a lot yeah. of great information in there. So that's kind of what the math says on how often you should be hitting it OB. So if you're hitting it OB more than that, you need to adjust targets and or adjust clubs that you're picking. Now, this is really important. I want to make something really clear here. When someone hears, okay, for a 10 handicap, if you want to get to a single digit, mid handicap, like a five and below, you got to limit your penalty shots, right? We've all heard that, yep. but the dangerous 
cycle that you can get in is you put more pressure on the tee shots, you're playing defensive, and a lot of people don't know how to limit those. So I just want people to, I want to reiterate what you just said, because it's about angles, it's about lines, it's about clubs, right? So swinging aggressive to conservative targets, picking the fattest parts of the fairway. I mean, Cermak did something really admirable that I never realized, which is why it's good to play with really good players, right? Cermak's, uh, what, a plus 0.5 right now or something, um, where we're playing La Quivera. I don't know if you've ever played it in Cabo, but no. it's one of those courses. It's a little quirky, and first time you're playing it, there's a lot of uncertainty about carries and angles. And Cermak, a lot of times, not because he was – trying to limit a penalty shot with a driver. He just wasn't comfortable. So in order for Cermak to commit, he just hit hybrid to the fattest part of the fairway and took a longer club in because he simply was struggling to commit. So I think that's an important thing for people to remember too, is what club's going to help you commit, what lines and parts of the fairway and greens are the fattest that gives you the best prox or um, proximity dispersion to miss. It's a great point. If you... If you put a club in your hand that you are not comfortable with, whatever the situation is, uh, your dispersion is very likely going to get bigger. Your dispersion doesn't stay the same no matter no matter what. It will get bigger. It will get smaller based on, on you and what's going on with you. If you just missed a two-foot putt on the last hole, you are less likely to hit a good tee shot on the next hole which is kind of crazy. I, I did that on PGA tour with the shot link data. I went and I found situations and I think I used maybe, maybe 26 inches or 27 inches. I figured it was right around there. I figured exactly what it was, but I found players that missed a 27 inch putt or shorter. And then I looked how they performed on the next tee shot. And they were horrible on the next tee shot. I forget what, and I did it in terms of strokes gain. Like what did they lose? What was the median strokes gain value on that next tee shot average? What did the distribution look like? And then what did, what did it look like compared to what they normally do? And they were materially worse on that shot. And that's because you were golfers, right? When think, when something goes horribly wrong like that, and it really surprises us, it changes our ability to swing the club effectively. I'm not going to get into the neuroscience of it, but our brainwave frequency gets higher, which makes it harder to swing the club effectively and have the same dispersion. So if you start to get really uncomfortable, that's a, a sign of two things. My two takeaways there would be, uh, one, we need, to, we need to figure out a way to get you comfortable, um, assuming it's reasonable to be comfortable in that situation. Like if you stand up on a hole and it's some crazy golf course down in Florida with houses on both sides and OB uh, on both sides all the way down and it's 40 yards wide, like you, you sh you, that's just not a driver hole for anybody in the world, really. Um, so if it's a reasonable situation where you should be able to keep your dispersion in that space, the right percentage of the time. So you're not racking up penalty strokes. We need to figure out how to get you comfortable. Um, but then the second part of that is you need to be aware of those situations and drop down to clubs that are going to have tighter dispersions because when your dispersion gets bigger, uh, more, more balls are going to end up in bad places, which makes the scorecard go up. So 
you know, we, we are not machines. We evolve over the course of shots, rounds, holes, and things sometimes get better. Sometimes they get worse. Sure. Um, well, Lou, when I was in high school, I was told by a sports psychologist, anytime you have a, a bad hole, let's say you make double, you got to get on the next tee box and say to yourself, I got to make par. I'm going to figure out how to make par. From a strategic perspective, should that be the mantra for the normal amateur player that's 5, 10, 15 handicap um, on every tee box? I'm going to do, I'm going to think clearly. And I'm, going to, I'm going to strategize around my best opportunity to make a par in this hole. Curious to get your thoughts on that. Um, I mean, there's probably a couple different ways that you could, you could think about that or tackle that. I, I don't necessarily think that that's, um, that's bad advice, but you start to get ahead of yourself when you do that, right? You're starting to thinking about, and, and you certainly, I would argue and push back against myself and say, when you're trying to strategize for, for a whole, you, you have to think ahead. But having those outcome-based thoughts, I, I, for some people, I think, and, and I'll say for some people, for some people, that that can make them perform worse. Um, and I would really uh, encourage people to, you know, to stick to their routine and, and really just focus on the next shot and, and keeping it in play. You certainly have to think ahead. Um, you're not going to just, you know, blast something up the middle of the fairway when there's OB just off the right side of the fairway. And it's only, you know, 22 yards away. The middle of the fairway is only 22 yards from OB. You're not going to do that. So you have to, you have to think through all of those things, but, you know, focusing on the next shot, having a good routine, I think is critical and it's key. And it sounds so cliche, but really taking it one shot at a time and don't get ahead of yourself, I think is the best thing you, we can all do. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. Ev, I know you want to jump in, but I, I got one kind of similar related question here. I think that's, that study is fascinating on the two foot putt and then the result of the next tee shot. Have you done any studies around the up and down for bogey versus the three putt for bogey Oh, and like that. what the result comes next? Because there's such difference. Uh, Isn't it amazing? How, yeah. We all know how different it is. Yeah, I've, I have not, but that's uh, that's a really that's a really interesting one. I will definitely put that on the list. It's the first <laughs> person I've heard ask that. So that's, let's uh, do that. That's a really good one. Yeah, that's. Uh, I'll, I'll. I'm okay. curious now. I'm. Isn't it funny <laughs> too? Um, unlike there's. I was saying that last weekend on this Ryder Cup trip I had, where it's like in a scramble on a par five, you're by the green and two. Right. And Lou, I've, I've heard you say great stats around being 20 yards off the green, right. And proximity and what people think. So let's say 20 yards off the green and on a par five, you put it to 12 feet. You're a little disappointed, but then you think back and you say on a regular hole, if you stick it to 12 feet, have a 12 footer for look at birdie, you're going to be pretty pleased. Right. So I'm really fascinated by these moments where the specific use case and the expectations can make the same exact result or opportunity feel entirely different. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. And we do, we do always feel different for some reason. Um, and I don't know if uh, us humans were really wired to play golf. <laughs> it seems like all the things you need to do to play good golf is the opposite of how we all typically think and act and behave. <laughs> well, well, right. When you make it up and down for bogey, whether it's a par three or par five, whatever, it's like, you know, way to salvage that hole. And when you right. three putt for bogey, you're, it's like, uh, you let one go there, you know, mm. <laughs> and, just, and you made yeah. the same score and yeah. the mind goes. So <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, and, and also, you know, you probably hit 
uh, not your best shot to get, get you in a position where you had to get up and down for bogey. Right. Well, so you had some bad mojo on that hole or whatever, bad swing thoughts, bad outcomes, whatever the case may be, something didn't go your way to put you in that spot, but you walk off generally feeling pretty good about it. Right. When you make a 10 footer for bogey, you feel very differently than when you three putt from 30 feet. For, for sure. And then Lou, that that's just the importance of the short game, right? Because the short game is the end of the hole and sets you up for the next hole. Because you said you could hit four bad shots, make that 10 or 20 footer, and you're like, you know what? Okay. Where you hit two great shots and hit two really bad putts, and you're ready to, you know, <laughs> and yeah. it's the importance yeah. of short game because it's always setting you up for what's next in terms of your new challenge. Yeah, definitely. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break here from a quick sponsor, and then we'll get you right back to the show. I've got a ton of crazy trips this, this summer. I've already gone to Cabo, I'm going to Palm Springs. <laughs> And I'm going to be playing in 100 plus degree heat every day. And it would be easy to get a sunburn out there. I know a lot of us leave sunscreen up to chance. We hope a buddy in the group has it. We hope the pro shop has some. We forgot to put it in our bags. Then you get that farmer's tan or worse, you get burned and it's painful. It's not good, right? I used oars and Alps my entire bachelor party. Every guy on the trip used it. I bought like six plus of them, SPF 30s, and nobody got burned. We loved the smell. It was not sticky. It's the best. I'm telling you, they are my go-to sunscreen now, Ors and Alps. Their SPF 30 has antioxidant vitamin C in it, which helps with moisturizing. It's not as drying as others. And more importantly, it doesn't have the crazy chemicals that a Coppertone Sport or a Banana Boat has. So here's what you got to do. Go to oarsandalps.com, O-A-R-S and A-L-P-S.com. Enter the code train, get yourself 15% off. I just submitted another order for myself because I ran out after Cabo. So I'm stocking up. The cooling wipes are an awesome little addition um, to use maybe at the turn. Maybe wipe your face off, clean it up, and then reapply. That's a nice little pro tip that I learned from Cermak. The SPF 30, SPF 50 spray won best sunscreen by men's health in 2021. And the ghost stick is another great option that won best product at the 2022 PGA show. So oarsandalps.com, enter the code train, get yourself 15% off, protect yourself out in the sun and get yourself something that you deserve. Great ingredients, great smell and great company, Chicago based. They really got great people over there and they're a great partner of ours. So oarsandalps.com, enter the code train. Let's get back to the show. Everyone needs to follow you, obviously, if they don't, at Lou Stagner on Twitter. And is it also at Lou Stagner on Instagram or is it? Um, I think it's Lou Stagner Golf, but I yeah, haven't, I, I don't go say. on Instagram. I'm not smart enough to figure out Instagram. So <laughs> I, more, I, more of a Twitter I, guy like me. We could, we could help you <laughs> out with Instagram. <laughs> yeah, um, whatever. If you do you have tutorials, <laughs> sign me up. I'm in. I could help you out with that. Um, so, Everybody needs to follow you if they don't. But you look at all these stats. They're so fascinating. They really help manage expectations. But I was really curious. Someone's listening to this right now. If we talk about a bunch of stats, which I'm sure we will in in a bit, it can be overwhelming. So if you had to narrow down, not necessarily one stat itself, but a category or an area of the stats, whether it's proximity to the hole, whether it's fairways hit, whether it's putts made out inside 12 feet, which I know you've talked about on other podcasts. What do you think, what stat area could provide our listeners their biggest aha moment 
and make them think about their approach or their game differently or make the biggest impact on their game. Does that make sense? It does. Uh, and I think the, that's an easy answer, in my opinion. Okay. I, I think the stat that people should be thinking about and tracking the most is how many, this is not including par threes. Par threes, we all have a, a chance on a par three to peg it and we get a shot to put it on the green. How many tee shots leave me in a position where I have a reasonable shot to knock the ball on or around the green for my next shot, or in the case of a par five, my, my third shot. So how many tee shots basically keep me in play? Fairways are so overrated for amateur players. They are pointless to track for amateur players. Uh, and I know some people are going to cringe when they hear that, but they really are. There, there isn't that much of a delta between what a, a typical amateur player is going to score from the fairway and the rough from the same distance. And keeping that ball in play is so important. And so I guarantee you, all of you, when you think back to your really good rounds and go back and look at all of your really good rounds, you very, very likely were in a position to hit a green in regulation after every tee shot. You didn't hit it in the woods and have to come out sideways. You didn't hit it into a lateral. You didn't hit it OB. Like you kept the ball in play. Keeping the ball in play is the most important stat, in my opinion, for us amateur players, because so many of us don't do that. And we, we hit it into bad spots far too often. So to me, that's the most important thing that you can think about. And you can adjust that and impact that in a couple of different ways. Um, you can pick better targets, number one. Uh, you can use different clubs. Um, so when you have a, a really tight hole with lots of trouble, you know, it might not be driver. It might not be three wood. It might not be five wood. It might not be hybrid. It might be a six iron for you and your dispersion and your skill level so that you can keep it in play and not rack up penalty strokes at, at you know, a higher clip than 3% of the time. And so that's, that's how you can adjust that. And then you can finally go get lessons and work with somebody. And that's why I also think it's really important to keep your stats so that you can walk into your instructor and you can have actually really good information for the instructor. There's so many of us that have bias towards what we think we're good at and what we think we're bad at. And we often relay that to our instructor. It's really beneficial. I've yet to meet an instructor that says, it's not beneficial for me to know what your on-course performance is. They want to know. And if you can give them strokes gained info, that's way better than, you know, I average 31 putts per round. There could be a lot of things behind why you average 31 putts per round. Um, yeah. To Serm's so, point earlier. Yeah. Where exactly. on the greens right. and everything. So real quick, Lou, I think this is so fascinating. And actually, Dr. Joe Parent, the author of Zen Golf, told us the same thing. He said, a good shot is a shot that I can get the club on the ball with basically nothing right in front of me. Yeah. Like if I have a yep. view at the green or my target, yep. that's a good shot. And so if I'm going to go count that, so 14 opportunities around, right? Instead of 14 fairways, let's help people understand exactly how they get a check mark. So if I'm obviously not in the trees, like you said, nothing directly in front of me, not in a hazard, but let's right. say I blast one so far right on another hole, I have a great look. That would still count, correct? That would, yeah, that would still count. Okay. Um, yeah, it would, it would still count. I mean, is it ideal? Um, that you just blocked 180 yards, right? <laughs> no, 
probably not ideal. Definitely something to note. Um, but uh, if you blocked one 80 yards from the center of the fairway and there's OB just off the left side and you were playing way to the right-hand side, yeah, you blocked it 80 yards from the center of the fairway, but you missed your target by 40 yards. It's going to happen. I mean, certainly there, there, there's some caveats there. Like if you're playing on a golf course and it's completely wide open and there was a course I would play at occasionally in my younger days where I mean, there were, it was, you could hit it anywhere. I mean, it did not matter. There was a few holes where there was OB on one side, but you could blast it wherever you wanted and you always had an opening. And yeah, you could definitely, if you went around that place, blocking it 80 yards offline or hole hooking it 80 yards offline, uh, you're going to struggle when you go somewhere else for sure. But that doesn't happen often. There's not many courses out there like that. So be reasonable with that. So we just want a reasonable attempt at, at hitting greens and regulation. And if you have that, check that as a win. I don't care if you're in the rough. Now, if you play a golf course with five and a half inch US Open style rough, I mean, one, you want to have a strong conversation with the with the manager, the superintendent and the, and the head pro at that place to tell them they need to cut the rough down for a lot of different reasons. But if you're playing at a course with typical rough, I don't care if you're in the rough. I will caveat this a little bit by saying, you know, bunkers, especially for us amateur players, you know, really good players, Matt, you're a really good player. You're probably not intimidated by fairway bunkers as long as the lip isn't in your way, but 10 handicaps do not do well from fairway bunkers. Five handicaps do not do well from fairway bunkers. So you definitely want to put a premium on trying to avoid those. And if you hit into those, I, you know, I wouldn't count that as a zero in the yes or no I'm in play, but I, I wouldn't count it as a one either. Like we want to try to avoid those if we can. They do worse in fairway bunkers than greenside bunkers, like 10, five handicaps. We're just, we're just horrible out of the sand, you know, five, yeah. 10, 15 handicaps. We're just, we're just bad out of the sand everywhere. Mm-hmm. We're not good in the sand. So avoiding that is, is definitely important and shifting your target away. If there's a, there's a lot of holes out there where there's no OB in play. There's no penalties in play. There's not a lot of tree trouble in play, but there's bunkers on one side in the landing area shifting way away from those. If you're a 12 handicap is probably a really good idea because you're not going to score too much differently from the rough than you are from the fairway, but you are going to score a lot worse from a fairway bunker than you will from the rough or from the fairway. Lou, it's fascinating to hear you talk about the importance of the tee shot and club selection. I think I want to hear you. I want to get your thoughts. I think the three wood is a great trap for players, especially those handicap ranges we were just talking about. Oftentimes you pull the three wood because you're not comfortable with the driver, but you're still trying to swing pretty hard and often, and it can be hard to control compared to a three iron or three hybrid. But I think it's a, it's a hard decision because you go from 15 degrees or 14 degrees to 19 degrees or 20 degrees, but it's all about your objective, right? You know, am I trying to put this in play and not really concerned about how far I hit it? Or am I trying to put this in play, but still hit it hard and far? And that's tough to do. So uh, I know Scott's not, Scott Foss is not a fan of the three wood. Um, right. And I wanted to get your thoughts um, for those 10 handicappers that we're talking about. Yeah, he's about- 100% correct. And so um, he, and I just recently posted this the other day, driver versus three wood, and it showed dispersion for 10 handicaps. And if you look at it, it's, there's same. no difference. It's the same. It's, it's marginally better with the three wood. It is slightly better with the three wood, um, but it's shorter. Um, it's, it's a little bit tighter, but it's shorter and it's not, it's not tight or tight enough 
for you to say, I'm going to be significantly more accurate with my three wood. You're not, you're about the same level of accuracy with your three wood as you are with your driver for most players. Um, and that's true for scratch players, five, Even for, ten, yeah, yeah it's, it's true. It, it doesn't change the better that you get. You're marginally better in accuracy with your three wood, but not enough to give up 30 yards. And so, you know, the way that Scott would, would tell you choose a three wood, if you can take trouble out of play, like, and so you're going to take trouble out of play by not being able to reach that trouble with your three wood. And he's 100% correct. Right. Uh, so that is the way that I think of um, choosing between driver and three wood. Um, and, you know, if you have a, if you have a really tight hole and let's say there's a bunker, that's uh, one of those holes with a, a bunker that's 90 yards long and it goes all the way down one side of the hole. Um, but you have room there. There's not really penalty strokes in play, like dropping to a three wood there gets you nothing. Um, you are going to score worse overall on that hole than just hitting driver in that mm. situation. So, you know, choose those clubs to, um, to avoid trouble by, by not being able to reach it to trouble with, with shorter clubs. Right. And, and then also make club selections uh, based on how much, uh, you know, how much, uh, penalty strokes come into play. And for some players, you need to, you need to really drop down because, you know, I have a pretty big dispersion with my driver um, and I need a pretty big window if there's trouble on both sides, because I hit it all over the map. Um, and there's a lot of people like me that are in the same boat. Yeah. This is fascinating because um, Serm and I's mutual best buddy, Ryan, who we played with in college is my member guest partner and my childhood best friend. Right. And I've noticed a huge difference between how he plays the hole off the tee versus how I play it. Now, Ryan shapes the ball much more than me. Okay. He's this plus one scratch player. But what I've realized he does, he sees a bunker on the left side and he's going to cut something off that bunker. And if it doesn't cut, it's in that bunker. Whereas me, and, and this is how my level of commitment, I feel better about hitting a club no matter how good I hit it can't reach that bunker because I don't want to be bunker. penalized by hitting a pretty solid shot. It can get buried. It can be up against the lip, especially in member guests. Like if I'm getting sure. pops, it's not worth it for me. Now, let me ask you, are both of those strategies valid for the player? I'm a seven. He's a scratch or should more golfers be playing a club that can't reach it? I mean, it depends on the hole. I mean, yeah. every hole is different and it's, it's hard to, to, to make a blanket statement yeah. on, on that. Cause it really, how much room is there? How much room is there left of the bunker? How much room is there right of the bunker? Mm -hmm. How high is the lip? What kind of sand is in the bunker? How deep is the sand? What's the approach shot going to be like? Is there water in front of the green? There's so many factors that are in play. You know, golf is different on every single shot. It's not like a free throw. A free throw is a free throw is a free throw. It's the same spot. It's the same distance. The hoop is the same height. It's yeah. the same every time. I mean, does the situation change? Sure. But the physical situation is exactly the same where golf is, it's always different. Everything is always changing. So it's hard to make a, a blanket statement in that situation. So I, I'm, I'm not trying to dodge the question. No. It's just, it's, no, it's, it's hard. Well, to I, I, Lou, I think it gets back to just my take from what I've been saying too, just back to more amateur players, normally amateur players are just afraid of greenside bunkers for, you just don't want to be in them, you know? And I think 
That gets back to understanding, putting in the time to get better at that. So there is a comfort level. Like, you know, we talk about on par fives, Evan, Ryan, I said, if it's a 250, there's bunkers in front, just trying to hit the bunker. Sure. If I hit, if I, if I hit, if I hit the perfect shot, you know, maybe it ends up in the green, but like, I want to be in that bunker. So there's definitely, I think a comfort level there. Yeah. Um, not that, I mean, you're a decent bunker player, but you know, you can get better. And then you take that 12 handicapper who's just not a good bunker player. Right. Well, it's also good information, right? Because if you're actively trying to avoid stuff, Lou, we've said before in this show, practice doesn't make perfect practice leads to comfort. So you, you sure as hell know what you need to practice. Right. But we haven't gone too much into some of the stats, but I think it's important of like, I think we should talk T boxes for a second, because I know you've been really passionate about this. And I think, Lou, you said on another podcast, keep me honest here, that if the tour players played the tees that we play, it would essentially be equivalent to them playing eight to 9,000 yards based on um, our skill level. Is that true? Uh, I mean, it, yeah, it depends on. Um, so there's a couple different ways to think of that. But when you have when you have someone, uh, the average male amateur hits it right around 220, depending on how you want to look at it, 217 to 220 and off the tee with, with driver, uh, with okay. driver off the tee. So that's driver only. It doesn't include shorter clubs, which is, you know, more than 80 yards shorter than a tour player, right? Mm-hmm. And they're shorter with every club in the bag. And if you just think of it on every tee shot of, we'll call it 80 yards, every tee shot, 80 yards, that's 800 plus another 320. So what, 1120, 1120 yards plus the par four tee shots, which are going to be, you know, very different plus all the approach shots, you know, it's 16, 17, 1800 yards, roughly when I kind of do the math that way, when I see players that are hit at 220 and they're playing at 6,600, that is just, it's insane. It's literally is like tour pros playing 8,500, 8,800, 9,000. I see some of the rounds that people play in Arcos and I see their handicap and I see their distance that they hit it. And it's not like it's one round. Right. I don't have it in front of me, but I want to say it was something like, you know, of, of players, I looked at players that hit it between 200 and 220 and like 12 or 13% of the rounds they played were like at over 6,700 yards. That's just, it can't be any fun. Like you're just, yeah. you know, you, there's so many par fours. You're not even going to be able to reach. You just don't hit it far enough. And like, I'm a huge proponent of, playing tees that are appropriate for your length and your skill level. And this is just a rough guideline that I have. It's based on not a lot other than my opinion. So I'll just say that whatever tee box you are playing, if you are not breaking, you know, shooting 80 or better 20% of the time, you need to move up a tee box, keep moving up tee boxes until you can do that. You know, if you're breaking 80 or better 20% of the time, on a par 72 golf course, you're going to get, you're going to be around an eight or a nine index. Like you're going to kind of get to single digits. You're going to be maybe, maybe a 10, but you're going to be somewhere between an eight and a 10 index. If you can't get to that level, you know, playing from 6,500 yards, if you can't do that, then drop down to the next box, drop down to the next box. I see far too many people, you know, struggling with the game that just don't hit the ball far enough or their skill level doesn't allow them to hit driver enough, right? So, okay, yeah, I can hit driver, you know, 260. Yes, but you hit driver all over the map and you cannot play driver on so many of these holes because you're going to lose seven balls for the day on the golf course you're playing on. 
And if you wanted to be appropriate, you're going to have to hit way less than driver because you're, you need a 90 yard window because you hit it all over the map. I'm a huge proponent of playing the tees appropriate for your skill level. And I always get beat up when I put that kind of stuff out there, but I stand by that. The USGA started the, you know, tee it forward program. And I think it's a great program. And at the end of the day, we're not playing golf for money. Like we're playing golf to have fun. Hopefully that makes sense. Wouldn't it be great if Lou's voice could be coming through the Arcos on the grips and saying, Hey, Move up a tee box, please. Yeah. I've been looking White at your data for weeks instead of blue now. Today. <laughs> yeah. Move up. What if that was your responsibility, Lou? That Arcos threw uh, that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Unfortunately, I, I wish I need a, a, vo- a better voice. If I sounded like Morgan Freeman, that might make things a little bit easier, but I don't. So I think people will get pretty annoyed pretty quickly. But <laughs> uh, don't be surprised if you if you see things like that in the future inside of the Arcos app um, where, you know, we start to to maybe tackle some of those things. I, yeah. I don't know if it's definite, but, you know, don't be don't be surprised. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break and hear from one of our sponsors that every single one of you needs before you go play golf, I'm telling you. So I've just been on all of these amazing trips, and I have had so many of my friends and people that I don't know just come up to me, see that I'm wearing a Roosters belt, and it's so funny. They ask me, hey, so I've been thinking about getting one of these belts, but I just wanted to ask you, are they as good as you say they are, or are you just doing an ad read? And I look at them and I smile. I, I laughed a couple of times. I'm like, look, I want to make it super clear. We're not just having anybody on this show. I don't have anything on our podcast that is just quote for an ad read. Okay. We vet everything. We wear it first. We have to absolutely love it. And then we bring it to the train faithful. All you guys. Okay. So shoproostas.com, enter the code train, get 15% off and free shipping. I'm telling you. They're woven stretch belts with a beautiful brown leather and metal clasp. They are the best belts that I own. I have five or six colors now. I want to get more. So whatever you're into, if you want a classic look with solids like khaki, white, black, navy, they got that. If you want something a little louder, they've got tri-colors. They've got a bunch of different colors. So whatever you need, they got it. So shop Roostas, R-O-O-S-T-A-S. Dot com enter the code train get 15% off plus free shipping and get the belt that your outfit deserves you guys are getting rowback out there elevate those rowback outfits with a rooster's belt i'm telling you you guys will absolutely love it all right let's get back to the show Lou, as a former college player i'm curious to at least ask you a question about your experience with the princeton men's golf team i believe and the assistant coaching work you're doing you know when i was playing in college you practice a ton you qualify a ton, you travel, you play tournaments a ton. Oftentimes it can be quantity over quality. So with the work you're doing and with all this data, with the ultimate goal of trying you know, to play better golf, talk us through how you work with your players at Princeton. And obviously it's individualized programs and data for each, but how do you build that into practice? Because I, I, to me, it's, this, is, this is smarter practice as opposed to more practice. I'm just curious to hear about it. Yeah. Um, and, and we're going to have to have me on again to give you kind of an update on this. So uh, I started uh, with Princeton a few months ago, earlier this year, as a volunteer assistant coach. So I came in 
and helped out with a few things. I gave them a few talks on uh, the mental game and, and a couple of other areas and have started to work with some of the players. And officially now I will be an assistant coach in the fall season. So as you know, you're a college player. You can only have two coaches on a college team, two paid yeah. coaches. So the uh, coach that they had last year, um, he was a graduate assistant coach. And so he's done with his graduate work now. He's a former player and he's uh, going on into the into the real world. So I'm going to step in and, and be the assistant coach. And one of the areas that I'll focus on quite a bit is on practices and how we how we plan practices out and, and what they're working on and how they're working on it. And I'm a big proponent of not doing block practice. I'm a big proponent of random differential constraints led approach. We had a guy on our podcast last year, his name's Rob Gray. If you've never talked to him, I would definitely suggest him for your podcast. He, he, are you familiar with Rob? No, I don't no. think I know. Rob. Yeah. So Rob Gray, he wrote a book that came out last year called How We Move. And he is a professor at University of Arizona, and he's been working on skill acquisition and motor learning for you know 25 plus years. And he's done a lot of work, especially in the, in the baseball space with professional teams and professional players and optimizing how we practice so that we can actually get better and retain skill. Sure. And so I'll be bringing a lot of those factors into, you know, to what we do and how we do it in, in practice. And you know, literally last night I'm going through and I'm designing some of the practices now to have all of these things in place for when the season starts in what, six weeks now. Um, so, right. it, so we'll catch up with you. Yeah. Yeah. For you sure. Must, this, is, this is fascinating. Yeah. I went to the university of Arizona and I played baseball. So should so, probably yeah. talk to Rob Gray. You should. Um, yeah. Rob Gray, uh, his book was called How We Move. Um, and it's a really good read. And the thing that I like, so I've gone down the rabbit hole on skill acquisition and motor learning, and I've read a lot of books, including a couple of college textbooks on motor learning, and they can get pretty deep and they get way above my level of understanding. The thing that I really liked about, uh, about Rob's book is that it was a very gentle introductory book on skill acquisition and motor learning and you know what you can do and, and why you should do it. And he has, he cites all the studies in there. So if you want to go down, he provides further reading and further information of where you can go if you really want to get into it. But it's a, it's a really good entry-level book for somebody that doesn't have a background in that topic. And uh, it will certainly make you think about practice a little bit different after, after reading that. He's not the only one doing this. There's a lot of folks that have been working in that space on skill acquisition. Um, and it's, uh, it's an area that I think you're going to see a lot of continued advancements over the next 5, 10, 15 years. We, just, we always get smarter, right? As, yeah. as athletes and what we're doing, we're always getting smarter. And this is an area where they're making a lot of advancements and, and we will continue to get smarter in it. Well, Rotella told us, Rotella's not a big mindfulness guy. Dr. Bob Winters is, but Dr. Bob Rotella is not. Rotella said he wants mindlessness and Rotella is a big, you know, when it's time to move, don't get in the way of your brain, right? Let the body move. You can have your intention, a clear intention. And if you do nothing else, focusing on where you want it to go instead of where you don't want it to go is a great place to start. But yeah, we've done a ton of podcasts and it's, it's a counterintuitive thing. There's a lot of amateur players think, well, in order to get my motor pattern, correct. 
I need to make sure I do these two things to quote, address my flaws. But there's also a fine line because then you're getting in the way of your natural motor patterns and your ability to move in your authentic way. So yeah, we'll yeah, have to you look know, into it, that. It's really interesting. Some of the concepts uh, around like self-organization and how you work. And I'm going to use me as an example. So I've been going through some really big swing changes and I, I work with uh, an instructor remotely. His name is Jason Giesbrecht, based out of Canada. Awesome dude, awesome coach, and really into the science of motor learning. And, you know, through the years I developed, I started to tee the ball high with driver. And when I say high, I mean, you'd look at it and go, what's wrong with this dude? Like I used a three and a quarter inch tee. And I would barely put it in the ground. Like when the ground was soft, I hated it because I had to put the tee down a little <laughs> yeah. bit farther. So this thing is teed a mile high. And I was delivering the driver like nine to 10 degrees up. And I was, I could smash it. Like I had, I had decent swing speed and I could, you know, I was launching it like a long driver. Like that's the kind of angle of attack that long drivers have. Like they're 10 up, give or take in that space. And I was doing that. And I kind of gravitated towards that many, many, many years ago. And it's great to hit the ball far, but it makes it a lot tougher to keep it in play when you're doing that. I tried to start bringing the T height down and I tried to start changing that angle of attack. And it was instantly a huge struggle, felt so uncomfortable for me. And so the way that I solved that was I went to the opposite end of the spectrum. I would take, take the T, take the T, put the ball on the T with driver. And I would tee it up as low as I possibly could. Like I'm teeing up a wedge on a par three as low as I could, like down basically just a smidge above the turf. And I would try to hit it with driver. And the first 10, 15 swings, I wish I had them on video because they were like trick shots because I was delivering the club so differently to that really high tee. I was just barely skimming the top of the ball on some of these and the driver would go over and, and the bottom of the driver would skim the top of the ball and the ball would kind of instantly bury straight down in the ground and then pop up and go about six yards. Like, and it, it was, it was just the craziest thing you, you'd ever seen, but my body figured out really quickly that, Hey, you can't swing nine up at this thing, you know? And I started to, and I had, uh, I have a, uh, a GC three or a Bushnell launch pro. And so I had that next to me and very quickly, my angle of attack started to go from, you know, crazy where it was down to like minus three, minus four. Like I figured out really fast that if you want to hit the ball, you have to have a, you know, minus four angle of attack on this teed so low. And that got me to a point where I started to raise the T height a little bit. And I got it to what was what you'd call a normal T height with driver. But I did that by going to the op. I made those changes by going to the opposite end of the spectrum. And it didn't take long. It, like over two or three sessions, I went from, I have to have this ball teed up on top of a pencil to feel comfortable to, I can tee it as low as I want right now. And it's amazing how that kind of worked out and, and uh, how my body figured out how to make those changes. I love that story. And that's the quote, the body will figure it out, right? Mm -hmm. Because you have no choice backs yeah. against the wall. Like you've got to figure out how to hit this, <laughs> the well, lowest T in the ground. That's a great a, thing. A, a 10 degree driver. That's a great it's thing great. to remember during the round. I've been told that by many of our guests, tour pros, that's like, and something I've been telling myself lately, Lou, there's mental game stuff to act as if. Right. Even if you feel like you're a terrible driver of the ball, you kind of have to act as if you're a great driver of the ball, not that you're the best driver in the world, but act as if how would you act 
as if, if you were. The other thing that's kind of helped me lately is I know I'm not as good of a driver of a golf ball as my partner, Ryan. So saying that I'm the best driver of the golf ball here doesn't feel true to me, but I could feel like I'm the best athlete there that day. Right. And this whole notion of like, my body's going to figure it out. I don't need to panic, which I've done. I don't need to reinvent my swing. I don't need to go back to a field that worked for me three years ago. My body will figure it out. Is it actually a great way to stay grounded and um, calm and not panic? So I think that's a great reminder for everybody. Now, before we let you go, Lou, I have to read a stat that I found from you okay. that I think is just such a great way to end <laughs> and help people manage expectations. Because we actually Uh-oh. didn't go as deep into the stats as I know you've gone in a lot of other podcasts, but that's why people have to follow you at Lou Stagner or Lou Stagner Golf on Instagram, Lou Stagner's on Twitter. But from 200 yards out, I think you know where I'm going with this, Lou. 10 index, 10 handicaps, average 3.98 strokes the hole out. Four shots from 200 yards out is the average for 10 handicaps. And so many of us think that we can stick it. And yep. have a shot of getting up and down. I mean, let, well, let's just finish with, with this. It's, it's making a bogey on a par three, right? Yeah. On a tough par three, right? 200 yeah, yard right. par three. We, uh, 10 handicaps don't play too many par threes from 200 yards if they're playing the right tee boxes. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, if they're playing the right tee boxes. But yeah, you know, some of those numbers are, uh, you know, they slap people in the face. They, they mm-hmm. really do to think that it's four shots on the app from the fairway. It's not, that's not from the rough. That's from the fairway. To think that it's four shots for a 10 cap from 200 yards in the fairway, it makes you think about things a lot differently. Like we're typically disappointed when we don't make par, right? As a 10 handicap, you're probably disappointed. I didn't make a par. Especially our listeners. A, you know, they're trying right. to ride the train. Yeah, ride the train. Exactly. But in some of those situations, let's say it's a long par four, maybe, you know, into the wind and and you didn't catch your tee shot perfectly and and you have 200 coming in or whatever the situation is, how you ended up at 200 yards in the fairway. When you get there, if you can par half the time and bogey half the time and average three and a half, you're picking up a half a shot on the average on other 10 handicap players in that situation. Um, and that is, that's material. That's significant. It's eye-opening to see some of the numbers and some of the stats for amateur players. And I hope that by sharing some of these things, it, it helps to give people a better understanding of what good means relative to their skill level. Because I think yeah. that's such an important thing to understand. You know, a tour pro is going to be disappointed if they make four from 200 yards in the fairway in most situations, in most situations. That, that's probably going to, you know, they made a mistake somewhere. But a 10 handicap, um, you know, if you, if you do make a three there, that's phenomenal. You just picked up a shot. Another 10 handicap players. And if you make a, if you, you take four, make a four as in four shots to hold out from there, like you're doing what typical 10 handicaps do and, you know, don't beat yourself up over it. So limit those big numbers, limit the doubles, limit the triples, limit the others. That's how you're going to, to score better for sure. Well, Lou, this was a real pleasure. We, yeah. we have to get you back on for sure, because the first interview with someone we cover a lot. Second interview sometimes is even better because we can go really deep on a singular topic. So we'd love to have you back. I'm going to give you the floor. Anything that we either didn't talk about that you think can help our the average player, the amateur, 10 handicap in this case, or that you want to reiterate 
that you want to leave someone with and then tell people where they can find you other than Twitter and Instagram, whether maybe your podcast. Yeah. You know, I, I, a couple things. So oh, I appreciate you guys having me on. It's been a, it's yeah. been a great conversation and I'd love to do it again. This was, this was a really, really good interview. So thank you for having me. Um, I would just say that at the end of the day, uh, golf is a game and it's, it's, we should be out there having fun. And a lot of the stuff that I do, I want to help players get better with the content that I put out there. But I also want to stress that a big reason of what I do and why I do it and how I try to help people is so that they can have more fun out there. Uh, we don't get paid to play the game. We're amateurs and, and we choose to spend money on this hobby because we love it. So have fun. I mean, do we want to play well? Yeah, absolutely. Is it, is it maybe more fun when we play really well? Yeah, probably. I'd be lying if I said it wasn't. But still, when you even when you play poorly, it's a game and, and have fun. And so that's kind of my biggest message. And other than that, let next time, we there's probably a million topics we could deep dive on. I really encourage you to get Rob Gray on and reach out to him. Yeah. Um, and I can off when we're done here, uh, give me some connection info and I'll send him a message and I'll connect you guys. So you can, you can get him on. Cause you would That'd be great. Be, you would love to talk be to awesome. him and definitely yeah. get his book and read through that. It's an easy read. And when you have me on again, we can maybe cover that topic and uh, get into some other cool stats. And uh, for those listening, you can find me, as you mentioned on Twitter, at Lou Stagner. Podcast is uh, Hack It Out Golf. I do that with Mark Crossfield and Greg Chalmers. That's really about it. And thanks again for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. It sounds like Lou is all about our mission to enjoy the ride. We're very hey, aligned. On 100%. That. Yeah, it's a game. I mean, we pay yeah. money to be out there. So have fun. Yeah, we said <laughs> once, Lou, if it, it's, if it starts to feel like a job, it's time to take a step back and, and start playing, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, have fun out there. Well, thank you again, Lou. Yeah. We love everything you do, so keep doing what you're doing, and uh, we'll have you back on again soon. Great to meet you, Lou. Yeah, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Look forward to yeah. doing it again.